Good morning, church family. Man, it's great to see you today. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm glad you brought your Bible with you because you're going to need it. And so would you go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 2. And if uh, you forgot your Bible this morning, use that black Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, you will find Romans chapter 2 on page 998 in the Pew Bible. And uh, I want to encourage you to take a few notes, track through the passage with us with your own eyes, and uh, those things will help you in your study of God's Word today. If someone gives you this option, which one do you choose? You want the good news first or the bad news first? Who Are you a good news first or a bad news first? Or what kind of person are you? Uh, the book of Romans has a good news, bad news quality about it. Uh, if I were to quiz you and say, what's the, what's the thesis statement of the book of Romans? You would immediately say, aha, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. You would say that immediately, and I'd be so proud of you and give you a hard candy and pat you on the head. Because that's the thesis statement of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul's going to explain the good news that Christ came to save us from our sin. But before he gets to the good news, he gives us the bad news. Paul is a bad news first kind of guy. The bad news is really intense. The bad news is this. The bad news is, is that we need saving. We are all sinners. Our, our sin is a rebellion against God. And because of our sin, we stand condemned before God in His righteous and holy judgment. But in order for Paul to lay out the good news, he has to help us understand and believe the bad news. And so that's where we find ourselves in the book of Romans here in chapter 2, is right in the middle of this long argument in which Paul is laying out the bad news of the sinfulness of all mankind. I showed you this slide last week. I want to show it to you again today, and I'll show it to you again next week as well, that puts us in our proper place when it comes to understanding this long argument that Paul gives about the sinfulness of mankind. So from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, one large segment with the common theme of the sinfulness of all mankind. And last week we were in chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of the chapter, and that's where Paul describes in detail the sin of Gentile non-believers. The fact that everyone, every person outside of faith in Jesus Christ is dead in their sin. Then he begins a longer section, chapter 2, verse 1, where we start today, all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, where he describes the total sinfulness of the religious non-believer. He summarizes all of that, his conclusion in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, where he just puts it all together. You take all of Gentile non-believing world, all of Jewish non-believing world, put all that together, all mankind totally wicked, dead in their sin apart from Jesus Christ. That's the bad news. It, this section is pretty intense, and it can be extremely heavy at points. And also, it can be mildly confusing. Sometimes Paul writes in such a way that just the logic doesn't line up with 21st century logic. That's not a problem for Paul. It's a struggle for us. But let me give you a tip that will help you as we study through this passage, a little north star, if you will, to help you interpret wherever you are in this section. 
Paul's conclusion of the whole matter is found in chapter 3, verse 20, and it's here on the screen. The point Paul is making in this very long section is this point here. No one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. Whether you are from a Gentile world or a Jewish world, whatever sort of non-believer you are, no one will be justified by works. And so even today, we're going to hit a spot in our passage that is a bit confusing for us. But if we remember Paul's conclusion, we remember where he's taking us, it, it keeps us on track for understanding the bulk of his argument. So Paul, in chapter 2, verse 1, turns his attention away from a Gentile non-believer and he turns his attention to the Jewish non-believer. And he wants to make sure that this person who comes from a religious background and has all these things in their favor, so to speak, would understand that apart from Christ... They're dead in their sin. And in order to make this point, Paul does something really creative as a writer. He has an imaginary conversation with an imaginary objector. So he imagines this person who is a religious non-believer pushing back, arguing against Paul and the things that he has to say. And so from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 8... Paul is in this back and forth with this imaginary objector. And the imaginary objector that Paul has in mind is someone who is religious and assumes that God is good with them even though Jesus is not the center of their lives. And the question we would ask ourselves is, do we know of people like that around us today? Is there a modern equivalent of a religious person who does not know Christ, does not follow Christ, Christ is not the center of their lives? And, of course, the answer is yes. We're surrounded by people who are religious or spiritual and without Christ. It's terribly common. And that person might be someone who comes from a non-Christian background. That person can also be someone who comes from a Christian background. Let me explain. The religious non-Christian person is that person who might say, I think there is a God. I, I believe there is a God, maybe not the God of the Bible, except the good descriptions of Him. And that God will surely be good to me because I live a good life. I put positivity into the universe. That's the religious non-believer. That sort of expression also comes wrapped in Christian language as well. And it can come from a Protestant background or a Catholic background. To be a religious non-believer would, or excuse me, a religious non-believer would look like this. You might say, if you come from a Catholic background, well, I was baptized as an infant. And I went to CCD and I, did, I took First Communion. And I've done all the things a good Catholic's supposed to do. Therefore, God will do me well. I'm living a good life, putting positivity into the universe. From the Protestant perspective, the, the argument would sound similar, just different activities. Well, I, uh, my, my family's always gone to church. I went to vacation Bible school as a child. Uh, we go to church on Christmas and Easter and random Sundays in mid-February. Uh, God's going to do me well because I, I'm living a good life and I'm putting positivity into the universe. There's no difference between any of those groups. The non-religious non-believer or the religious non-believer, there's no difference. It's all lucky rabbit's foot religion at the end of the day. You just choose different labels to affix to it. 
And so Paul takes this mentality head on this morning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. He's going to make sure that his readers understand there is bad news for the religious non-believer. This person who has no relationship with Christ, no pursuit of holiness, no love for the Lord, no cruciform life, that person stands condemned before God. So my goal today is to expose the folly of Christless religion. Whether your religion is shaped by the world or shaped by a church, every Christless life stands condemned before God. And so in our passage, I want to show you three errors of Christless religion, and then I want to show you the better way from this. So follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul now turns his attention to the religious non-believer, Christless religion, and here's what he says. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. So in our passage, I want to show you three errors of Christless religion. This is who Paul has in his sights this morning. If you are someone who believes there is a God and he's certainly going to do me well just because I'm generally a good person, Paul is speaking to you. What's wrong with Christless religion? Paul gives us three things that are wrong. The first error is this. Christless religion denies its own guilt. If I'm religious in some form, apart from faith in Christ, I don't know Christ, don't walk with Him, well then one of my big problems is I deny my own guilt before God. Look at what Paul says in verse 1 as he turns his attention to the religious non-believer. He says, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same thing. So Paul's imaginary objector sits in judgment of other people. 
And, and what do you think that imaginary objector might be saying as they judge another person? They might be looking back to the people Paul described in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. What might they say to them? They might say, ha ha, you got it coming. God, look, look at what they're doing, God. It, it's to, you're going to french fry them and they deserve it and look at the wicked lives they lead and how horrible they are these sinners have really done it this time God's going to get you now that's the type of judgment that perhaps they might be giving well a, a common tactic that we might employ in order to justify ourselves is to compare ourselves to someone we think is worse than us. We, we might have someone within an arm's length and say, this one's really bad. Like we're intellectually honest enough to say we're not the best person. I'm not the holiest of people, but I am not the worst. I know someone who's a lot worse than me. And then, it, just to be safe, we always have terrorists that we can point to as well. I, I may be bad, but I'm not a terrorist. They are really bad. So in this grand cosmic scheme of things, the God that exists, if, if He's going to judge me, surely He'll judge me more favorably than He would a terrorist. Why? Because Christless religion denies its own guilt. Paul says that when a person tries to justify themselves in this way, they only condemn themselves. Look at verse 3. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? You, you, there's this flaw, this fundamental flaw. You're condemning all these people. You forget yourself in the condemnation. And where would Paul get an idea like this? Well, his source material is Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He said, Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you, and it, it, you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? In other words, if you're going to put yourself on the bench, don't be surprised when you're called to the stand. You may appoint yourself as a judge of men, but you cannot make yourself a child of God. Paul takes this religious non-believer and puts them in the spotlight, revealing the truth about their own heart. In verse 3, he says, this person commits the same sin they judge. In verse 4, this person despises the goodness of God. In verse 5, they possess a hardened and unrepentant heart, and they will receive God's wrath for their sin. Those who live by a Christless religion will not find mercy simply because they find someone else who they think is worse than them. That person faces the full judgment of God. Now here's where you might push back. And you could say this, you could say, Cody, you're, you're describing a judgmentalism that comes from a religious non-believer, but I've seen all kinds of judgmentalism from believers. I've seen and heard Christian people just say horrible things and treat people horrible as they've judged the people around them. You, you're right. Every one of us has seen that. Probably every one of us has taken part in that. And so what, what do we do with that reality? Well, I, I think it's important that we understand when Jesus says, do not judge so you won't be judged in Matthew 7, uh, 
There's a difference between the discerning judgment that leads to holiness and a harsh judgment that condemns the souls of others. There is a judgment that all followers of Christ must employ. When Jesus says, do not judge, he's not banning all judgment. We have to judge between truth and falsehood the truth of the gospel or a corrupted gospel, true teachers, false teachers, what is righteous and what is sin. Followers of Jesus have to be judges in this regard, discerning judgment. But what Christ forbids and what Paul speaks of as condemned here is the harsh judgment of souls. When we assume God needs us to sit on the throne and determine who's in and who's out, that's the type of judgment that stands condemned before God. And so, brothers and sisters, we have to continually respond to the kindness of God through ongoing repentance. It's devastating if we would take on Christless judgment over Christless people. That's not our place. We are ambassadors of the King, loving our neighbor as ourself, sharing the truth of the gospel. And so we must remove the logs from our own eyes, take up our crosses, and follow Christ faithfully. We must not forget the powerful stories of God's grace in Scripture. Who receives grace in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ? It's people like this. It's tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. It's the woman at the well. It's children. It's even Pharisees like Nicodemus and Paul himself. Because The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So no one can cover their own sin by screaming about the sins of others. There is a better way. Christless religion fails because it denies its own guilt. There's a second error of Christless religion here in Paul's writing. And the second error is Christless religion assumes that God has favorites. It assumes that that God's going to treat me different than he might treat someone else. So in verse 6, Paul quotes a line that's found in several places in the Old Testament. Look at it with me. He says in verse 6, he will repay each one according to his works. So God's going to repay each person according to their works. What's interesting about this verse, if you were to go to the places where it's found in the Old Testament, you'll find it used in, in a couple of different ways. Some of those are positive, some of them are negative. So, for example, in Psalm 62, 12, where this line is quoted, it's used in a positive way. It's encouragement for the righteous person. God is going to reward you. Remain faithful. Walk with Him. He's going to repay everyone according to their works. You're going to receive your reward at the end of your days. That verse is used positive there. But in Proverbs chapter 24, 12, it's used in a very negative way as a warning To the unrighteous person, the rebel against God, God will repay each one according to his works. It's a brilliant line for Paul to use here because it promises both blessing and judgment. And that's Paul's intention here in this paragraph, verses 6 through 11. He's laying out the two directions of God's judgment. For those who do good, they will receive blessing. Those who do evil, they will face judgment. So God's going to repay each person according to his works. We're all judged by the same standard. What's the standard? According to verse 6, the standard is our works. 
Don't miss this. In verses 7 and 10, those who do good works will receive glory and honor and peace. In verses 8 and 9, those who don't do good will receive wrath, anger, affliction, and distress. And this is where grace-loving people can get a little nervous in our pews. But Cody, I thought salvation was by grace through faith, not by works, so no man can boast. You're exactly right. So then what what does Paul mean here when he's saying that we're going to be judged according to our works, rewarded or condemned according to our works? Well, this is where you need to remember our little north star in this section. Chapter 3, verse 20. Remember the conclusion that Paul's driving us towards. What's the conclusion of this entire section? The conclusion is that no one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. What's confusing about that is Paul seems to be contradicting himself. Here in chapter 2, he's saying you can be justified. A good person will be justified by works of the law. Chapter 3, verse 20, no one's going to be justified by the works of the law. And Paul's right on both accounts. If you and I could live such a life that God would call it good. If by the standard of God's holy, holy, holiness, we lived a good life, not by the way we determine goodness, but by the way God determines goodness, if we lived that kind of sinlessly perfect good life, then we would indeed, at the end of all things, receive glory, peace, eternal life. The problem is that none of us are going to meet that standard, not one of us. It's possible that if we were to reach that standard, God would judge us favorably. But it's not reality. The reality is all of us are dead in sin. No one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law, by our own moral standard, whether that's religious or irreligious. There's no one who is righteous, not one person. Christless religion believes that God will indeed judge some people righteous just because they do good by some standard. God's on my side, not on your side. But according to Paul, God's standard of judgment is the same for all people, and by God's standard, all people fall short. Every single one of us, based on the measure of our lives, are found to be guilty before God. It can be hard for us to believe that. Because we we want to believe the best of ourselves. We want to believe that we've got potential in God's eyes. But we've got to believe the bad news Paul gives to us. Uh, You probably know that prior to living here in Massachusetts, my family and I lived in Kansas. And we lived in this small town outside of Wichita, Kansas. The town's called Mulvane. We had a casino, and so I renamed it Mulvegas Sedgwick County City of Sin. It was just, it was a great little town to live in. And uh, that town was on the map, if it's on the map for anything, because of a group that started there called the Patriot Guard. The Patriot Guard was a group of veterans who rode motorcycles and wore leathers, and they would carry American flags and honor veterans at their funerals. The organization started as a response to a cult out of Topeka, Kansas, called the Westboro Baptist Church. Not Baptist, not a church, a a hate cult who would protest funerals and say horrific things, and they would protest the funerals of veterans uh, and soldiers who had been killed in Afghanistan. 
And so as a reaction, this group of bikers from our little town uh, went to the funeral of one of these soldiers and they created a line uh, between the protesters and the family, revved the engines of their bikes so that they couldn't hear, the family couldn't hear the, the hateful speech of this cult, and then also broke up the line of sight between the protesters and the family. What began as just sort of this knee-jerk response to this hatred um, quickly grew into an international movement. There are chapters of the Patriot Guard all over the country and, in fact, all over the world. It all started in Mulvane, Kansas. One day I got a call at the church. Uh, Cody, the leader of the Patriot Guard, died. We need a church and we need a preacher. That's my gig. So we planned the funeral, and it was unlike any funeral I'd ever seen or have seen since. I showed up to the church early that day, as was normal for a funeral service, and the Patriot Guard beat me there. And in order to get into the church, I had to walk through a corridor of veterans, all holding large American flags, standing at attention. They were there for over an hour before the service began. Get inside, and, and the whole place is just full, wall to wall, with these motorcycle riders, veterans, holding their flags, wearing their leathers, and it was incredible what was said about this man who died. He was a, he was a family man, a successful businessman. He was an incredible leader of the Patriot Guard. He was a veteran. Every accolade you could give a human being belonged to this man. We left the church and drove to the veterans' cemetery for his burial. It was unlike any funeral procession I've ever been in. Members of the Patriot Guard rode two by two on their motorcycles with their American flags perched in the back of their motorcycles. And I'm not exaggerating, over a mile and a half long procession of bikers and American flags drove us to the Veterans Cemetery. Other members of the Patriot Guard had beat us to the cemetery that day. When we drove in, we again drove through a corridor of veterans, men and women, holding their American flags, standing at attention to honor this man and the life that he lived. There was a military salute, a military guard, excuse me, at the service. There was even a real bugler. Most uh, buglers who play taps at funerals today, they play a recorder. If you look closely, there's a speaker inside the bell of the fake horn. This was a real bugler. I've only seen it twice in all the funerals I've done. By every possible standard, this man was a man worthy of praise. Not much was said about his relationship with Christ at the funeral. There wasn't much to be said. And I am not the judge of any man's soul. Don't know anything about the inner workings of his heart with the Lord. But I can say this with confidence. If all he had to offer when he stood before God was a Christless life of work and patriotism, God's word says he stands condemned, guilty before God. A man that fine, a man that honorable, a man that noble, guilty before God without Christ to defend him. Just as guilty as any sinner who stands before God 
the worst sinner in our community who represents the most reprehensible sort of life, both of them stand before God guilty without Christ. Why? Because verse 11, God does not show favoritism. Every human being created by God, bearing His image, will stand before Him and give an account of our lives. And He will judge us by our works, and our works leave us wanting. But God, do you know how long my funeral procession was? Do you know how much I loved my family? Do you know how much I gave for my country? Without Christ, we all stand condemned before God. That's the problem with Christless religion. God will not make an exception for us. Paul says that thinking is eternal error. There's a better way. So Christless religion, it denies its own guilt. It assumes that God has favorites. Here's the third error of Christless religion. It has no solution for sin. No solution at all for sin. It has attempts, it has some ideas, but it never resolves the problem of our sin against God. Paul divides the whole world into two groups of people. You've heard this already repeatedly in just what we read this morning and starting at the, book, or at the beginning of the book of Romans. He divides the world into these two groups. You've got Gentiles and Jews. Gentiles do not have God's law. Jews possess God's law. And that distinction comes into focus here in verse 12. Look at what Paul wrote in verse 12. He said, for all who sin without the law. So who's that? Who's he speaking of there? He's speaking of Gentiles. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law, who's that? Well, that's Jews. They possess the Mosaic law. Those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. He says there's the same destination for both of these groups of people. The one without the law, the one with the law. Everyone will be judged by the law and perish because of it. Because there is no solution for their sin in their attempts at keeping the law. They don't keep it. They fall short. He points out here that Gentiles, they, sometimes Gentiles who don't have the law, they accidentally obey the law. They don't plan to. They just don't lie. Or they just don't murder someone. Or they just don't uh, you know, commit adultery or whatever. They, they, they're obeying the law of God, though they don't know the law of God. And though they obey it, by accident, it's written on their hearts. They know something of a moral code. They don't get credit with God for that accidental obedience because the entirety of their lives is one of law-breaking. And the same, therefore, is true of the religious non-believer. They have to realize the same is true for them. They're worse off than the Gentile. The Gentile doesn't have the law and is guilty. They have the law and they are guilty. They know what God has said. They know what He requires. And even though they've tried over and over to be good, they still fall short. They are defined in God's judgment as a lawbreaker. Now, you might push back here and you can say, Cody, that doesn't sound fair to me that God would hold people accountable for laws and rules that they never knew about. That's a good point. So what if a person wasn't judged according to God's law? What if they were judged by God only based on their own sense of morality? What if your own moral code was the standard by which God judged your soul at the end of your life? 
The Christian philosopher and writer Francis Schaeffer did this very thought experiment, uh, experiment and he, he wrote about it. Here's what he said. He said, if every little baby that was ever born anywhere in the world had a tape recorder hung around its neck, and if this tape recorder only recorded moral judgments with which this child, as he grew, bound other men, those moral precepts might be much lower than biblical law, but they would still be moral judgments. Well, eventually each person comes to that great moment when he stands before God as judge. Suppose then God simply touched the tape recorder button and each man heard played out in his own words all those statements by which he had bound other men in moral judgment. He could hear it going on for years, thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other men, not aesthetic judgments, but moral judgments. Then God would simply say to the man, though he had never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? The Bible points out that every voice would be stilled. All men would have to acknowledge that they have deliberately done those things which they knew to be wrong. Nobody could deny it. You condemn yourself. Friends, not only do we not meet God's standards... We don't even meet our own standards. Christless religion has no answer for sin. We need a better way. Paul's laid out three errors of Christless religion in this section of his letter today. Christless religion, it denies its own guilt. It thinks God plays favorites. It has no solution for sin. To be sure, these are not all the failures of this way of living, but they are the three spotlighted today. Christless religion is a colossal failure all around. So what is the better way? Once upon a time, there was a man with two sons. He had an older son and a younger son. The younger son came to his dad and he said, I want my trust fund early. And he took that money and he went to a far-off land and he spent that money on wine and women and friends. And when the money ran out, the wine ran out, and then the women weren't around anymore and his friends were all gone and he had no food and he had no home and he had nothing, absolutely nothing. He was utterly destitute. And he had a moment of clarity as he ate from a pig trough one day. I've got a dad who's a nice man. Surely he would take me back as a servant. I'm a pig of a human being in more ways than one, but maybe he would just let me be a slave to him. That's got to be better than living homeless and eating with pigs. And so he began the long journey back home from that far-off land, He turned onto the road, the long road that leads up to his father's house. And his father was standing in front of the house, looking down the road as he had day after day, hoping this would be the day the boy comes home. And the father took off running, sprinting, as much as an old man can in sandals, to his son. And when he got to him, He embraced the boy. Now, the boy just immediately began to spew apologies, and he'd been practicing this speech 
for a hundred miles. Dad, I'm sorry. No, don't, don't touch me. I'm filthy. I'm disgusting. I'm, I'm, I'm physically filthy. I'm, I'm morally filthy. I, I've wasted all that you've given me. Just let me be a slave. And the dad won't hear it. He embraces him in all of his filth, hugs the boy, kisses the boy all over his nasty face, his beautiful nasty face. And the dad says, it's time to party. He took him back, not as a servant, but he took him back as a son. Time to celebrate. This son of mine that I thought was dead is alive. The one who was lost is now found. He took the boy inside and and the celebration began. But the older son did not rejoice at his younger brother's return home. Instead, what he did to his father was he tried to justify himself. He pointed out all the things he had done to earn his father's love, a love that his father had always given freely. He had spent his life trying to earn a love that he could not earn and he should not try to earn. He should just enjoy and rest in. And so the older son hated his brother, and in his hard-heartedness, he rejected the kindness of his father. He condemned himself. If you are religious without Christ, you are the older brother. Who are you in that account from Luke chapter 15, the story from the lips of Jesus that we've heard so many times? The religious non-believer is the older brother who rejects the kindness of the father, justifies himself by an impressive resume, all that he had done for his dad to earn a love that his dad had always given freely. Which one are you? If you're the older brother justifying yourself and therefore condemning yourself, I want you to hear the invitation. It is time to come home. It's time to run into the arms of your heavenly Father. Time to turn to Jesus. Turn away from your self-righteousness and your sin and turn to Jesus in faith that he died and rose again for your sin. He will clean you and forgive you and you will be his forever because he loves you. And then one day you will stand before God the Father in your final judgment. And you will know that you have nothing from your life to plead your innocence by. Instead, you will point to Jesus and you will say, I plead His blood and that's enough. And then glory and honor and peace will be yours forevermore with Christ as your Savior. What if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ? It's been the real struggle for me in working through this large section. What does a believer do with these words that are targeted first and foremost to a non-believing person? Reading these words from Paul is like taking a trip into a lifeless desert. Reading this passage reminds us of the hopelessness that we lived in without Christ. But it should result in, I think, an odd reaction from us. When we read through chapter 2 into chapter 3, I think the odd reaction should be rejoicing. I think this passage ignites our affections for Christ. We're reminded again of who we were without Him and who we are with Him. We're reminded what we have gained in Him and how He's loved us. 
And, and so the question we would ask here at the end of this passage is, do I delight in the Lord? Is my affection for Him growing? I'm, I'm seeing who I was when I lived without Christ. When I think about who I am with Him, that should ignite worship and affection in me for Him. And what does that greater delight in the Lord look like? Well, it, it might look like any number of things. It could be a hatred of sin, or hope in the promises of God, or contentment in fellowship with God, or desire for the final revelation of the Son of God, praise in the salvation He's accomplished, grief for our failures to love, gratitude for God's abundant blessings, continued repentance day after day from sin, zeal for the purposes of God, or a hunger for righteousness. Brothers and sisters, set your hearts to lay hold of God this week. In light of who we were and who we are today by the grace of God, set your life to grab hold of Christ now. Put that time on your calendar. Be as intentional as you have ever been about anything in your life. You've got plans with your television this evening, you got to have plans with God right now. Nothing else can come in between you and Him. Nothing is more important than this moment where you would sit with Him in prayer. You would eat your Bible. Fill your thoughts with the words of God. Fill your home with the praise of God. Set your heart on God with such intentionality that God would say of you, Her heart, His heart beats like mine. Brothers and sisters, that's the better way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for so great a salvation as this. You gave your son to die for us in our sin. And we were not sinners who had earned such lavish love. We're sinners deserving of the judgment and the decree against us. But you are gracious and merciful and loving and kind and compassionate. And God, you you are so unlike us in every conceivable way. Thank you for loving us and calling us to your side. I pray this morning for my friends in here, those listening online who are religious without Christ. Thank you for the grace that you have given them, that they would even acknowledge there is a God. Truly, they're not far from your kingdom. But God, bring them in. Even this day, Lord God, turn their hearts from sin and self-righteousness to your Son for their salvation. And Lord, let us who know Christ as our Savior not live in Christless ways, rendering Christless judgment to Christless people. Instead, let us exult in our salvation and praise you again for the love that is ours and the eternal life that is ours now and forevermore in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. And let's respond by continuing in prayer by singing this prayer. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Jesus Christ, our only place where we can hide and find salvation. Would you stand as we sing?